So you can be uh, a person who makes resolutions or not a person who makes resolutions. But either way, in this transition from the dark to the beginning of the new light, there is a natural uh, reflective uh, renewal experience that happens to each of us. It's, it seems to be in the wiring somehow. And lo and behold, that's exactly where we are. The, that the darkness crescendoed and it's now just this first inkling of a new light. And yet we're still there in the darkness. And in that time of, of uh, non-activity in terms of our species, that's a time to reflect, to uh, renew, to set out with some new direction, to have a new dream. So uh, in our culture, we tend to be pretty skillful at doing that in terms of saying, okay, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to get in shape, I'm going to clean out my desk, I'm going to redo my apartment, I'm going to uh, deal with my relationship, I'm going to find a new job, and so forth. We, 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 we come up with these goals and we set about doing them or forget about them, as the case may be. But nonetheless, that happens. And to some degree, that also happens in terms of our spiritual life where we'll say, oh, I want to do more retreats this next year. A couple of you before class were telling me about that, about wanting to do more activity in terms of your spiritual practice. So tonight, I would like us to explore that a bit together and do so by looking at three separate steps that sort of allows this aspiration of, oh, I would like to deepen my spiritual practice as just this arising to how it actually becomes a manifestation in your life. And as you would do this with your spiritual practice, so you would do it with other things too. But this is our focus tonight. Uh, my primary teacher is the Venerable Ajahn Sumedho, who um, has a monastery over in England and has been here a number of times and will be here this year and who's quite a, an amazing teacher. And his teacher's name, uh, his teacher's now dead, but his teacher's name was Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah taught the Four Noble Truths as his primary practice. That's what he taught. And that, in many ways, is what Ajahn Sumedho teaches. And um, I, too, <laughs> have ended up uh, focusing in terms of the Four Noble Truths a great deal in my teaching. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, in, this, in the spring, I'll be back out here because I've written a book about Ajahn Sumedho's teachings it's called Dancing with Life, and it'll be out in April. And I want to start tonight with reading from the teachings of Ajahn Chah called A Still Forest Pool, which Jack, who's going to be gone uh, here for the next few weeks some, uh, which he did with an, another person. And this is titled Happiness and Suffering, but these titles are a Western edition. They, what they did was take little pieces of Dharma talks and uh, give it titles. 
A young Western monk had just arrived at one of Ajahn Chah's forest monasteries and asked permission to stay and practice. I hope you're not afraid of suffering, Ajahn Chah's first response. Somewhat taken aback, the young Westerner explained that he did not come to suffer, but to learn meditation and to live peacefully in the forest. It's like us when we come on Monday nights, huh? We don't come to suffer, but to meditate and be peaceful. Ajahn Chah explained, There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first kind. So two kinds of suffering, the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. This is our aspiration. This is our motivation for practice, that we would have less suffering in our lives, that we would be caught less, that we would grasp less, that we would not be tormented by our attachments to having things the way we would prefer to have them. Not saying that we don't have our preferences, but we're not imprisoned by our preferences. So, suffering that leads to the end of suffering, suffering that leads to more suffering. This is the choice we make. So, when we come to this reflection about, should I do more practice? Am I willing to give up other things in order to practice more? Home practice in the formal way, the the, uh, moment-to-moment practice of living the Dharma in daily life, coming on retreats, uh, all kinds of different ways that we can approach practice. But in each instance, it means that we're going to have less time to indulge our wants and our desires in some way. So how does this actually come about? How do we, how do we uh, have this realization, it's worth it to me. I do want to have more of a spiritual basis to my life. I want to shift it a little bit as to what I'm doing. How do we actually make that happen? For this evening, I want to suggest that the first step is faith, what's called sadhana. Ajahn Sumedho, my teacher, uh, will say on various occasions that the biggest challenge for his Western students is that they don't have faith in their own practice. And I found that to be true. By faith, he does not mean uh, conviction about your views and opinions. We have plenty of conviction about our views and opinions but rather faith in our own awareness, faith in our own insights, having confidence in our own awareness, our own knowing, such that we are motivated to stick with it and see it through and to allow it to change us. It's very difficult to commit more deeply to your practice if you lack faith. Faith does not mean belief. So it's not a belief in something, some philosophy or, or, or some uh, uh, sort of uh, belief system, but rather a kind of confidence in your own ability 
to know and a kind of confidence in your own ability to be mindful and that that mindfulness will bring a kind of understanding. And it does not even mean that an absolute conviction that yes, that if I spend more time in practice, something good will come from that. It is only that there is enough faith that you're willing to see if that might happen. The confidence to take the chance, that's all. But it's a lot. Sometimes I feel as though we get in our own ways because we feel as though there's a certain amount of absolute assurance that we believe we have to have in order to commit to practice more deeply. But it's not really true. If we bring attention to this question of what degree of faith do I have, we go, yes, there is, I do know that even in the little bit of practice I do, something feels right about it. There's been moments when it's been better. So all of my emotional responses aside, if I step into this more, there's a real possibility that it will make a difference in my life. So this this faith in that. Another challenge around faith is that sometimes students will make this disparaging remarks about themselves in terms of, well, I can never get fully enlightened. And they're saying it uh, in various tones, sometimes humorous, sometimes sarcastically about themselves, different tones. But you want to really be careful about that because you can easily fall into this uh, all-or-none trap. So there's that perfectionist in you, you know that part of you, where you're sort of judging everything from, well, if I can't be fully enlightened, I must be fundamentally flawed and there's no reason to bother. The Buddha taught the gradual path. He also taught in terms of lifetimes because that was the, the absolute dominant view at his times in terms of reincarnation and all. But the gradual path. So for some people, there's quite a dramatic change occurs from practice in an all-at-once fashion, but not for most of us. And even for those that happen in that way, you then spend years building the foundation underneath your realization. I've not seen exception to that. So you can have faith because you have been inspired by something that you've read and that, or, or that you've heard about and that inspires you. Or you can have the kind of faith that comes because you've met someone or you're in a group of people that are committed and that, that brightens the faith in such a way that you're willing to commit more, to, to uh, uh, do a fair amount of renunciation, of a sacrifice, a reallocation of time and energy and resources to deepening your inner life. And then if you are paying attention, 
you have what is referred to as verified faith, where you see, yes, this does make a difference. I know this because in this very moment I'm experiencing it. And it can be so small. During the break, a person came up and was talking about, uh, at the front of the room, you couldn't hear, but one of these wall hangings would flap off and on with the, uh, with the turning on and off of the heater. And uh, she was reporting how she worked with that during the sit. And in that, there were these moments of realization that you don't have to contract around something that's annoying or unpleasant. It can just be annoying. No need to add. It's just annoying. As you learn the truth of this, the difficult person at work, that family member that you don't get along very well with, uh, the uh, aspect of your significant other where they just need to fix it, all of those things become just another moment. It's not the way you would have it be, but that's the end. In practice, in this moment, this particular yogi had that around this sound. But it's, it's the bringing awareness to, no, noticing that, yes, this is true. I could live with this sound that was annoying, and it was okay. And it was annoying. It was annoying, and it was okay. If we don't notice then we don't as easily, as quickly, as fully gain the insight from our experience. And this is what Ajahn Sumedho is pointing to when he talks about this. If you don't trust your experience, then you won't actually pay attention to it. You won't, you won't give credit, you won't give credence to those moments when you see that suffering changed. So this knowing that you know in relation to it makes a real difference and that reinforces this idea of faith. Faith is this first step, the way I'm talking about how you can more manifest a a real sense of commitment to practice uh, in this year. The second step after faith is this mindful cultivation of intention. The mindful cultivation of intention. What is your intention? So you have lots of goals in your life. Goals in terms of material things, goals in relationship, goals of health, lots of goals. And they're useful. They tell you how you want to spend your time and how you want to spend your resources. So there's a kind of uh, directionality that goals provide for our lives. And they provide a kind of structure. I need this structure because I'm going in this direction. And that's quite useful. But intention is the second of the eightfold path. (coughs) Samasamkapa, this wise intention or right intention. And that is this very moment. What is my intention just now and now and now? as I'm listening, as I'm speaking. So you're walking in, uh, uh, during the course of your day to these various goals. But each step you're taking towards each of those goals, there is intention in that moment. And it's not just intention towards that, but it's in this moment, am I causing suffering or not causing suffering? In this moment, am I reflecting 
my deepest values, which in Buddhist terms is in terms of loving kindness, compassion, being available to not causing suffering, to staying mindful, to staying awake, to in this moment being as enlightened as you can be just now, to being as free as you can be right now. Without faith, hard to make that intention. Without faith, harder still to maintain your loyalty to your intention, to rest in attention. Just as I ask you to notice in the meditation that you can let the body rest on earth, that you don't have to hold the body down or you don't have to stop the body from being swallowed by earth. It rests naturally on earth. And in that same way, as you relax your attention, the attention can stay on the breath. It can rest on breath without your having to do a lot of efforting. You just rest it on the breath. It's just there. And thus you can soften into the experience of breath. So it is with intention in terms of your daily activities. You can rest in your intention whether your act, your activity towards your goals is going well or not going well, whether the conditions around going towards your goals pleasant or unpleasant, uh, whether you're being thwarted or, or things are going great, you can remember what you're about moment to moment. I wish to be a kind person. I want to be alert to what's true now. I want to respond to this moment rather than be a slave to my reactivity. This is what I'm about. So this intention combines with faith to allow you to move forward. And in the same way then, when you, when you come to your, your goals, your spiritual goals, you believe, you have the faith, you have this kind of confidence that it can make a difference. Not a guarantee, but you have enough faith that it might make a difference. And since this is coming from your core values, you intend. So it might be that you, you say, I want to do more retreats, and that's how it manifests. Or it might be, I'm going to come to more evenings and day-longs, or I'm going to go to one of the sitting groups uh, as many weeks as I can here around the Bay Area. That this is the nature that you're choosing to have as a more your spiritual goal, and the faith and the intention supports that. Uh, or it may be that I want to live the Dharma more in daily life and you persevere through it. The times that you could gossip, you don't gossip. Or the times that you, uh, that you could act harshly or speak harshly, you don't because you're committed. That, that was your goal that in, in some way to manifest more of your, of, of your inner core values in your daily life, and that this is, this is the edge of your spiritual practice right now. Very wholesome things to do. This evening, I want to uh, make a specific suggestion and have us work with a, a specific kind of, of spiritual goal activity, which is around the precepts. How many of you are familiar with the five precepts? Hold up your hand. Well, not that many. Hmm. Okay. So on uh, retreats, when we go on a residential retreat here at Spirit Rock, 
we, the first evening, we take these vows, these what are called training precepts, in which we commit to, uh, to doing certain things. The first one is to not taking life. So we share the land with all sorts of creatures and we commit to not taking life. And that's the first of the precepts. The second then is to uh, not take anything that has not been freely offered. So therefore, uh, even in terms of taking someone's cushion or zabutan or something, we don't do anything like that. Or if we're taking a shower and there's shampoo there, we don't use the shampoo if it's somebody else's shampoo, even though probably they wouldn't mind, we we don't take anything that has not been freely offered. That we, If we don't know it's been freely offered, we don't take it. And then the third precept is that on a retreat, we, we, we are brahmachara, we don't have any sexual activity. In daily life, this comes out as to not cause harm with our sexuality. And then the fourth precept is right speech that we that we uh, do not cause harm with our speech, and then the f- fifth precept is that we do not intoxicate our mind w- with drugs or alcohol. So these are all stated in a negative way traditionally, and they have the effect on a retreat of creating a very safe environment, and so we can come very close in our silence. There's no locks on the door and. We're trusting one another. It's a wonderful thing to have that kind of safety emerge. But the underlying value of the precepts is that they represent a way to manifest in our activity these core values, that we practice intentionality through the precepts. So our intention is to not cause harm, the first precept. The the second precept is our intention is not to steal, not to take something that's not ours. And it becomes very powerful. Many people that go on retreat choose to take these five precepts in daily life. You can take all five precepts or you can take a single precept for a period of a month or three months or the entire year. You could take a, a, a one precept, work with it for two to three months, then take another precept. And you're getting to know it. You're, you're using it as a tool to bring mindfulness to your daily activities. And for many, many people, this has been a great way to train. It's uh, very, very common in our community. A few uh, uh, highlights or a few ways of understanding this uh, to get out of our own our cultural uh, heritage. They are not commandments. They're training precepts. So when you fail in your aspiration in terms of a precept, it is not a question of your having (laughs) sinned, but rather it's a question of, oh, there was something in these conditions where I could not maintain my precept. So it's a chance to learn. 
So it's, it's correcting your course. It's not a way of judging yourself or punishing yourself or have some future dread. But rather, there's, it's released in the moment of realization that, oh, this is not according to my precept. This is according to my core value. Very refreshing and empowering. I'm going to uh, be stating these precepts in a slightly different way here in a moment. Uh, It had not dawned on me that more of you would not be aware of them, but one thing that I have learned in working with students is that if you uh, say a precept to yourself in such a way that it becomes onerous or impossible for you to imagine you're doing, then it's not helpful. So in daily life, when you take the precepts, you, you would state them to yourself in a way that you can imagine yourself living them. So for instance, right now, it may be that you're at a time in your life that you really can't work with the sexual precept, that, you are, that, that this is, you're, it's just not something you could commit to realistically right now. It's just the way it is that you're, it's, it's too charged right now. So you don't say it. Or for you, you need to, uh, around not causing harm with sexuality, you have to really clarify, well, what does that mean? How does that apply to my values? Because for one person, it might mean one thing, but for you, it means something else. That's fine. Or likewise, uh, in terms of right speech, uh, you may be, have a job where there's a certain amount of hyperbole that's used. Maybe it's a sales job or some sort of customer service job. And you use hyperbole. Is that wrong speech? That's for you to examine. I've worked with many people individually around this. and Very interesting job situations, by the way. There could be a whole little book about these, these precepts and the job situations. And what, is it this or is it this? But... What is successful is to have you make it your own. And and as you do that, you then find a new comfort with yourself and it renews this sense of faith. So that as you've you've personalized it, you've you've tailored it to what you can imagine uh, doing right now. So uh, as I name these five to you, I name them all in the negative form, but uh Sometimes on retreats and certainly in terms of daily life, there's a number of teachers in these last 30 years have stated the precepts in a positive manner. And I, um, I talked with my local sangha, which meets Sunday nights in Corte Madera, about this last night. And I was going to bring, I've got a couple of these uh, listings of these five precepts stated positively. And I was initially going to just bring one of those and read them. But as I got into it, I realized that uh, for my orientation for living the Dharma in daily life, that I was going to end up needing to write my own. So uh, that's what I've done over these last few days. And I'm going to uh, state each of them for you. And you can think about it and see if this relates to you and how you, in fact, might practice So the first one, 
to the best of my ability, I will protect and support life. So not just not harm life, but what is my intention? My intention is to protect and support life and encourage the fulfillment of the potential for love and understanding in others. So not just the physical life, but, uh, but protecting that very essence of, of the great richness of the human experience that potential which so often doesn't get supported, doesn't get protected. So this might mean in terms of work that you create a safer work environment around you or with your friends. So again, to the best of my ability, I will protect and support life and encourage the fulfillment of the potential for love and understanding in others. Can you imagine some variation of that, that you say, over this next six months, I'm going to explore that. What would that mean to me? How would that manifest in my home life? How would that manifest with my friends? How would that manifest with that difficult person that I have to deal with? The second one, to the best of my ability, I will only take what is freely given and vow to practice gratitude and generosity. That would be a big change, huh? To notice what, in fact, has been freely given to you. To have gratitude for this day, to have gratitude for the rain, all the rain that supports us, the the sunshine and the blue sky today, the uh, clear night out there now. Or all the friends, or all the times that this person fixes you that cup of coffee. Yes, you're paying them, but do you really think that that's that they're getting paid enough? That that's what matters? It's this interconnection. They support you with that cup of coffee. You support them by answering that phone, or doing that diagnosis, or doing that therapy, or whatever it is that you do and have done, and so on and so forth. This interconnection. And noticing with, with, with gratitude and appreciation and in turn being just a little more generous. Just a little more generous in the course of your day. How would that be for a precept? How would that change what you notice in the course of your day if you were looking for opportunities to practice generosity and gratitude? How would it change this attitude, this mood, if you weren't so uh, habitually connected to noticing to what you don't want and have it, trying to get it to be the way you want it, but rather noticing what's good about the way it is, even in the midst of things not being so good. A very powerful practice. One aspect of this uh, taking only what is freely given that has proved to be quite rich for a number of people is the truth about power. Power is not evenly divided in life. I know this does not come as much a surprise to most of you. Whether or not that's fair or unfair is another question because that gets to be philosophy. But we don't have to get 
caught in that philosophy because as a spiritual value, we can take responsibility for our power. So when we are in situations where we have the power, we, we can act in appropriate way as opposed to using manipulation because we're powerful with words or because we're powerful by title or because we have the money or we have the status or the sonority. We can exercise power in a way that is balanced, that is towards fairness, that involves gratitude and generosity. It's, it's quite a different relationship with power. And that alone can be the precept for some of you if, if you're in a situation where you have a lot of power. How do you exercise that power from your core values? It doesn't mean you're not supposed to exercise it. It doesn't mean that in daily life, in competitive situations, you don't compete. But there's, there's appropriate competing and inappropriate competing in terms of the manner in which it's implemented. And we all know this. We all feel this. But in our society, we get numbed out. Get numbed out. We become aware of it when we're uh, subjected to the abuse of power. But when it's our turn, harder to remember. But there it is as a possible practice. The third of this precept stated positively. To the best of my ability, I will respect and support ongoing relationships and honor my own commitments and develop the discernment between the beauty of eros as feeling and the compulsion to act it out. So this uh, acting in ways that support people who've made it a committed relationship to one another. That's a major step to really support, which means sometimes uh, not going along when someone is violating that commitment. Not judging them for it, but not being a, a co-conspirator in some way, maybe. Or in uh, supporting your own, uh, your, uh, your own commitments, taking responsibility for those own, your own commitments, whatever that might mean to you. And again, it can, I'm, I'm not trying to prescribe behavior, but to invite inquiry, to mindful inquiry uh, that your values manifest in your life more fully. Not in some perfect way, but in a live feeling where you feel more whole, more peace, more aligned with yourself. Whatever that might mean. For you, it might be that you're a little more supportive of your significant other because you've kind of gotten alienated and you feel as though it's been unfair and so you've withdrawn your support of that significant other and you realize, oh, I'm not really living up to my commitment. That might be what it is. So it, it's not some sexual transgression or anything like that, but, well, just this, this withdrawing of support or withdrawing of libido. So that it, it can be all sorts of things. And again, a wonderful way to practice. It, you, as you make it a, a precept, you, then you start being mindful of it all the time. And then you start going, well, how does this work? And how do I feel about this? And what happens if I do this? And you learn, you grow, and it deepens you automatically. You don't have to say, oh, I'm trying to deepen, I'm trying to grow. No, you just, this moment, and this moment, and this moment. It opens you up over time. Uh, it's the, the classical analogy is it's grinding away 
the, those those uh, fetters, the, the the things that uh, cause us to, to cling. It just grinds away slowly, all on its own. If we st- if we connect with mindful intention as best we're able. The fourth precept stated positively: I will do my best to say what is true and what is useful and timely, and to practice deep listening, such that my speaking and listening reflects loving kindness and compassion. I will do my best to say what is true, useful, and timely, and to practice deep listening, such that my speaking and listening reflect loving kindness and compassion. In the Buddhist teaching, he said that right speech was saying what is true. Seems easy enough. Although, how often do we not practice it? What is useful. Therefore, if it's not useful, we stay silent. And what is timely. So something might be quite useful and, and quite true, but it's not timely. Or it may be something that's, that's uh, true, but it's neither timely nor useful. And in our society, we are so inclined to speak our truth, you know, because we, we uh, and it's wonderful that we will speak up for ourselves, but a lot of times that's not what we're doing at all. We're actually being encapsulated in our reactive minds. And so we, someone says something that we don't like and we say something back. Boy, that really helped the situation, huh? Or uh, we've, we've gotten a certain gripe about someone at work or at home, and so we, we see them doing that, and we leap to say it again. In fact, reinforcing the very behavior that we don't want, particularly if it's in relation to a child. And so we make this commitment in our speech to say what's true, what's useful, what's timely, and we practice this deep listening. So when someone's speaking... We give ourselves to listening to what they're saying as opposed to saying what we're going to say back or imagine how we're going to fix them because this is our friend and they, they got this wrong. No, we're just present for them. We let our heart be open to them and we have that experience. We train uh, on certain retreats how to practice this deep listening. It's a wonderful feeling when you realize someone's really listening to you. You've had that. Everyone's had at least one experience in your life of someone listening in that way. It's great. And you can be that person. Uh, uh, A dear friend of mine who uh, has lived uh, a heroic-sized life, much larger than normal life, uh, has affected lots of people in lots of different ways, maybe some of you in this room, actually. And he, in this recent time period, has been uh, afflicted with a a fairly devastating uh, illness condition. And so he cannot, in an outward way, manifest in such a large scale anymore. But he can still speak. And his practice is that each day he finds opportunities to acknowledge people with his speech, to acknowledge the difficulty, to acknowledge their contribution that they're making, 
to uh, to uh, uh, recognize a certain skill. He finds all of these different ways to have right speech be a gift to all of those that he comes in contact with. So if you looked at this man from uh, his past situation where he uh, appeared from outside to be larger than life and you see what he's doing now you go oh what a diminished life but if you look at it from inside you realize he's still living large because he takes his his inner life and manifests it as fully as is possible in that context that's heroic living so in our spiritual practice, we can think that, oh, we, we have this re- reduced circumstance or we've got all of these problems and we're so busy or we, we make up all of these stories, you see. We make up all these stories so we don't actually give ourselves the chance to find this more profound way of living, living in regular little moments, living in larger commitments. We don't give ourselves the chance. Why? Not enough faith. Not a lot of enough faith. We already know we're all capable of this. We've all had these moments when it's felt so harmonious for us. But we don't trust them enough to give ourselves to them, to organize around it. We don't cultivate this moment-to-moment intention. With the faith, with the cultivation of the intention, and then choosing one as a practice, it starts to manifest in our lives. You don't have to believe me at all in this. But you do have to go see for yourself. This is what the Buddha said repeatedly. Don't believe me. Go see for yourself. The final of these, of these commitments, of these precepts, to the best of my ability, I will maintain a clear and alert mind that is aware of its motivations moment to moment such that it can discern what is the cause of suffering and what is not. A clear and alert mind. So yes, on retreat, we, we don't want people taking alcohol or taking recreational drugs. But it's more than that. Lots of things can cloud your mind. Uh, eating incorrectly can cloud your mind. Many of you have experienced that. You can, uh, you can uh, eat anger. You can stay angry in such a way that it clouds your mind. Because you indulge in your anger. You can feel so self-justified that you just keep feeding that anger. And it clouds the mind. So, in this positive statement of the precept, just one way of saying it. To the best of my ability, I will maintain a clear and alert mind that is aware of its motivations. Of its motivations. What is motivating me right now? When I make an issue out of who's taking out the garbage this evening, what's motivating me? When I say something when, uh, uh, with the people at lunchtime about someone, what's motivating me right now? Am I positioning myself so I will look a little better by having them look worse? Is that really what I want to do with my life? What's motivating me? To the best of my ability, I will maintain a clear and alert mind, thus mindfulness, that is aware of its motivations moment to moment, such that it can discern what is the cause of suffering and what not. So these five, these five 
precept stated positively in this way, if one of them interests you, you would state it in your words, in your way. I'm going to be posting this on my website, which is marinsanga.org, if you want to look at one of these or take one of these in some way. If you're interested in this, uh, a kind of precept working, it's very helpful to write it down, tinker with the words a bit, reflect it, tinker some more, go to a friend that's a true friend and state that you're taking this as a precept. Someone who can support it, not someone who's going to na-na-na you about it or who in some disagreement will say, well, look at you, you're not keeping your precept. (laughs) But rather someone who really can hold for you the seriousness of uh, your aspiration. Seriousness not in this heavy sense of the word, but seriousness of your wishing to have this kind of relationship to your experience that is coming from your deep values, not from your reactive mind. The reactive mind elicits clinging, it elicits suffering. So, starting to work in this way with the precepts. What makes precepts uh, difficult to uh, carry out is uh, the kinds of things that uh, makes uh, uh, suffering occur in the first place. So when we talk about uh, right effort in relation to doing the precepts, uh, again quoting from Ajahn Chah, Proper effort is not the effort to make something particular happen. It is the effort to be aware and awake in each moment. The effort to overcome laziness and defilement. The effort to make each activity of our day meditation. So it's this kind of right effort. And we have to uh, uh, work with, and it's not a defeat, it's not a, a, a flaw in us. We have to work with those aspects of the human mind that are difficult. To start with, we have our instincts. There's nothing wrong with our instincts, the instincts of sexuality, of eating, even the instinct of aggression. Those are not bad things. Without those instincts, we would not survive. The survival instinct itself is one of the things that can get elicited and cause us to uh, cause suffering with, without mindfulness, without this connection to our, to our intention. So the instincts are part of life. They're to be celebrated as part of life, but not to be given into without awareness, without consideration. As we become more liberated, more evolved, more, more spiritually aware... We don't kill the instincts, but rather we are in harmony with them in such a way that they do not cause harm. So it's fine to have a sexual urge. You don't have to act it out. It's fine to disapprove of someone's behavior. You don't have to tell them if it's not appropriate. And certainly you don't have to punish them. Likewise, with uh, the second area where we get into a lot of difficulty is around emotional impulse. For a number of years, I was a volunteer in a prison program, 
And with that particular population cohort, that was the most difficult thing in terms of teaching mindfulness. In that environment, the emotional impulse was to be acted out immediately. And it caused uh, such really good people so much harm because there was no sense of not obeying the emotional impulse. You were chicken if you didn't obey the emotional impulse because there wasn't an understanding. It's just an impulse. We all have all sorts of impulses that arise. You're driving. You can just watch the various impulses that happen while you're driving. They're not to be taken as some sort of literal thing. They're just impulses. So we have to work with those just as we have to work with our instincts if we're going to take one or more of these precepts. And then a third thing we have to work with is our uh, attachment to our views. We are so attached to our views. We can feel um, entitled or we can feel self-righteous. We're caught in our story. And our story overwhelms this intention to practice a precept. It can get caught up. You can be in a relationship and you've, you've just come back into kind of working more closely with that person, that relationship. And lo and behold, in a particular moment, uh, he says or she says something and your whole story lights up. And rather than responding to what's true right now, you go with your story. And they may not even meant that. You may have misheard them or they were meaning something entirely different, but you're caught. When you realize that, you go, oh, I just lost, I lost my intention in terms of my precept here of right speech. I got caught in my story. Not shame on me, but oh, oh, that's how it happens. And as you recognize it over and over again, and as you renew yourself over and over again, your behavior, your very mental patterning changes. Literally, your mental patterning changes. And then we're also struggled to work with our great ability to rationalize our behavior. We will rationalize our behavior out of self-pity, out of justifying, or out of anxiety. We will rationalize our behavior. And so in working with the precept, we just have to notice that. And notice that many times we'll rationalize away. When we become aware of it, non-judging, we just start again and we learn from it. And then finally, we, we have to work with this uh, a great ability we have to deny and suppress so that we literally don't remember that we've done something or we're denying that we're doing it even as we're doing it. That acceptance that that's part of our mindset allows us to gradually come into more and more awareness. The great thing about mindfulness, as you get more and more habituated to being awake in the moment, you just automatically start noticing more things. You just start automatically noticing. You, get, you catch on to your own game. And uh, because it's, we practice mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion together, you catch on to your own game and you don't hate yourself for it. You have this kind of tenderness towards yourself. And amazingly enough, that tenderness brings about much more change in our mental patterning than that harsh judgment ever did or someone else's harsh judgment of you. So in all of these ways, we train ourselves to live out in our daily lives our spiritual values. Again, 
This is just one way that you could deepen your practice this year. It's just one kind of uh, spiritual go. Going on retreat or listening to Dharma talks on tape or uh, starting a Kalyanamita group there with your friends, a little sitting group there in your home. All of these would also be wonderful ways to practice. This is one way to practice. So any questions or comments about this in terms of your life? Monday night group, always people, there's very little people have anything to say. <laughs> Don't know why that is. <laughs> That's right. It's such an advanced group, yes. <laughs> you don't have to have any questions or comments, but I really, I really want you to, uh, does this sort of thing uh, appeal to you in any way? Yes. <clears throat> Yes. Right. Opinions and views are not the problem. The Buddha did not say, do not have opinions and views. He says, do not be attached to your opinions and views. So, for instance, let's take the political arena. Some of us may have fairly strong opinions about various political leaders, and that's fine. And we might be right. Or maybe we're not right, or maybe we're not totally right. But how we act from those, those, those opinions and views is another matter. Do we act in a way that causes suffering or not cause suffering? With our speech, with our actions. And in and, and the same way, you may, you may believe that a, a particular person is not, uh, is not acting in the way that you would have them act that's in your personal life. That's your opinion. And that's your view. And you can hold to that view without being attached to it. You can have a view of social justice, that you live out your whole life supporting social justice in a certain way without being attached to it. That seems at first paradoxical, but as you actually get into this kind of living the Dharma, you realize, no, there's lots of room in there. This, this is my view of this, but maybe I'm wrong. But since it's my view, I will continue to live it out because this is my view. This is the best judgment I have. But when you're not attached to it, then you don't have to uh, condemn the other person. The classic example is killing for peace. You know, I'm committed to peace. Therefore, I will kill these people so we can have peace. You know, that's there's no there's no room in that. There's no there's this, there's a rigidity. There's a there's a a, a kind of uh, contracting into the very thing that you would not be. So if I was to um, personalize my own precepts, mm -hmm. um, how do I decipher between what's really true for me versus some sort of rationalization? I mean, those can change. Yes. So then within those layers, how do you kind of... Yes, yes. Excellent question. How do I how do I do my own precepts and not know that I'm uh, have have confidence that I'm not rationalizing that setting them in such a way that's to my convenience? And the answer is trial and error. And uh, I actually this is just personal here, just one view, but I actually encourage people to be more modest 
in their precepts at first and then to uh, to make it more difficult and and, and so that they they're not they're not at war with themselves so much around it and you 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 discover when you're bsing yourself right you see and maybe you don't see in real time it's 3 months later but this is the rest of your life this spiritual practice so you will learn as you learn that's trusting your awareness. If you're committed to awareness and you trust it and you stay with awareness, then it eventually reveals itself. So an excellent practice. And it's very rich, that exploration of that. So asking yourself over and over again, well, now is this, am, I, am I rationalizing here? Am I doing a kind of entitlement? Or am I, am I selectively forgetting? That's, that's part of that denial, suppression thing. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a very sharp comeback from mm-hmm. the other person. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I found successful is to see if you could turn it into a question. That can be very so effective. I make a statement about it, which I did the other day about this is the time for peace. It's, you know, peace on earth. And the man <coughs> said back to me, oh, how can you have peace when some guy wants to cut your head off and you know, you don't give him peace. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't answer appropriately, I felt afterwards. And I thought <laughs> if I had said, well, how would you help to bring about peace? Or some kind of question that would throw it back into his corner. For, for, that's a, a very good point. For many years, I, I practiced Aikido. And Aikido is a martial art where rather than... Uh, running from an attacker or attacking back, you actually blend with the attack. You take the energy that's coming at you and you blend with that energy in such a way that you start to guide that energy. It's a, a, a wonderful martial art. And we can do that with our speech. We can do that with all actions. We're not that... And in, I, I, I like making that reference because in, in Aikido, you do not let the attacker hurt you. But you also have the goal of not hurting the attacker. So in our life, we can move with that kind of harmony. That, that is this interconnectedness. That's the oneness of it. We're not supposed to be perfect in it. We're going to have to stop now. Um, I do encourage you in this period of dark as the light's starting to begin to ask yourself, what could I do this year? What might I do? Is there something I want to do that would align me more with my inner values? You've been very attentive and I very much appreciate that. So thank you. We have... uh... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.